Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. The Kingdom of Palinarua in Sri Lanka was at the height of its power from the 11th to the 13th century CE. The collapse of Palinarua marked an end of the lowland kingdoms on the island. It has historically been attributed to Indian invasion, but recent excavations and research suggest different factors may have contributed. Here to discuss this is Dr. Keir Strickland, lecturer in archaeology at La Trobe University. Thank you for joining me, Keir. Nice to be here. You were awarded an ARC grant to study this. Yes, I got a discovery project uh, along with two partner investigators from the UK. So. Name drop them. So Professor Robin Cunningham of Durham University and Professor Ian Simpson of the University of Stirling. Now, I'm going to be very cagey about the terms that I pronounce here, but quickly give me a spiel on, on how badly I did and uh, put these kingdoms in a bit of context for me. Sure. So the names can be slightly tricky to pronounce, especially if you've not worked in that area for a while. Polonarowa today, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and it's a large, what we'd think of as kind of low-density urban centre. So the archaeological ruins today cover a very significant area of northern Sri Lanka. And it, as you say, sort of it really emerges as a capital or a centre on the island in the 11th, 10th century. The dates are still somewhat uncertain. Mm. And it burns brightly. It flourishes very successfully. But then about 200 years later, it's almost completely abandoned, which is where this ARC comes in. The Discovery Project is looking to build upon earlier work. Mm. Um, my PhD was part of that, but earlier work with the same team of Robin Cunningham, Ian Simpson, and our collaborators in Sri Lanka, where we were looking at the, I suppose, rise and fall to a degree of Anuradhapura, which is the predecessor, the earlier capital of Sri Lanka. Mm. Although that lasted for a much longer time, around 1500 years. Paint me a bit of a, a word picture here. Where in Sri Lanka is this? What was the significance of the location? I guess, why was this a good place for a capital? And what, from your perspective, was life like? You said low-density capital. Sure. De-academify that. For me. <laughs> <laughs> so for anyone unfamiliar with, with Sri Lanka, obviously Sri Lanka is a kind of roughly tear-shaped island, lies just off the southern tip of the Indian subcontinent. Anuradhapura is the first capital of Sri Lanka. It emerges around the 5th century BCE. It's formed around a walled citadel, which is kind of the royal capital. So that's an area about one square kilometre, mainly consisting of palaces, royal elite residences and Buddhist monuments. And then surrounding that, you have a much larger area of Buddhist monastic complexes, huge shrines, stupas, temples, etc. And that is the urban core of Anuradhapura. So although we think of and we refer to Anuradhapura as being urban, it's not urban in the sense of a Hellenistic, Roman or Mesopotamian city. This is not a city of lots and lots of people living in close proximity to one another. Mm. You have a core which is monumental, so secular power, the royal power, and also has the sort of ritual and religious centre focus. And then around that, you have what some people, like Professor Roland Fletcher from the University of Sydney, would term low-density urbanism, by which we mean it's an urban layout, but it's unlike those sort of European cities. People are not living close together. Mm. I think possibly a better term might actually be high-density rurality, which is splitting hairs to a degree, but, but actually it's more like a very highly populated rural landscape than this kind of idea of low-density urbanism. 
So Anuradhapura emerges in the 5th century BCE. It's capital of the island for 1,500 years. And my PhD looked into the apparent collapse in the 11th century CE. And the question there is, well, what happens? Why does Anuradhapura fail? And I think really any city or kingdom or state that survives for 1,500 years can't really be said to fail in that sense. It's, it was mm. incredibly successful. Yeah. You asked, though, sort of why that was a good place for a capital to form. Really, it's not. It's a really stupid place for a capital to emerge. It's not on the coast. It's over 50 kilometers from the sort of northwest coast. And Anuradhapura is located in the northern dry plains of Sri Lanka, what we call the dry zone. Mm. So this is an area which has really, really shallow crystalline geology, which means that surface runoff when it rains is very heavy, comparatively low rainfall, and which has much higher evapotranspiration. So basically more water is lost through evaporation and runoff than actually falls on an annual basis. There's only one river in the area which runs all year round. All the others are seasonal. And there's no natural water storage. So there's no lakes or similar that form naturally. Right. So it's actually quite an effectively an inhospitable area to try and have that kind of dense settlement. And to have something resembling urbanism was only possible due to an incredibly sophisticated and incredibly successful irrigation system. So it's this amazing hydraulic landscape. It sounds like a deliberate attempt to address the need for water through irrigation. Yeah. So when the British arrived in the 19th century, they found an area that had an incredibly low population amongst the lowest in Sri Lanka, endemic malaria. And the few villages that still existed in the area were surviving using something called one village, one tank. So they had a very simple system of irrigation where they'd create an urban bund or sort of dam effectively across a low drainage area, mm. trap rainwater in there, and then irrigate the area directly below that dam. And this system would support a small village population. In comparison, if you sort of go back almost 2,000 years, the hydraulic landscape of the Anuradhapura period, which really we see being sort of put together in the early historic period, so sort of 3rd century BCE through to... 5th century CE is kind of when that landscape's really established. Mm. That system is far more complex and it consists of a combination of what we call tank cascades, which is reasonably similar to the sort of one village, one tank, except that you see a series of slightly larger buns and tanks or reservoirs being formed in a single drainage system. So water's trapped in the first one, then gets trapped again, it's then a gets trapped again. kind of system, isn't it? Exactly. And so yeah. effectively, as the drainage collects all that water during rainfall, it's repeatedly collected. And so it flows much more slowly through the landscape. You get much more irrigable land, effectively. And then, so the sort of the masterpiece of that system, as well as all these tank cascades, is they then created gigantic monumental reservoirs, really, really big. And these huge reservoirs could then feed multiple tank cascade systems and effectively provided that resilience against years of poor rainfall. Mm. How big a population could have sustained, do you know? That's a really good question, and it's one to which we have absolutely no answer. One of the complicating factors we have in Sri Lanka is that certainly during the Anuradhapura period, and this is based off a um, five-year AHRC-funded project led by Professor Robin Cunningham, what we were expecting to find was villages 
and towns so mm. you know you have Anuradhapura as this urban core and then around this we expect a sort of satellite system of larger order towns which perform particular administrative functions like controlling the irrigation systems collecting taxation trade hubs manufacturing etc sure and what we found was a complete absence of any of those sorts of settlements and instead we have effectively monastic sites which are long-lived permanent effectively often in very visible locations on top of sort of rocky outcrops so you can see them for a fairly large distance and they're often linked to trade manufacturing iron working etc and then you see very very short-lived small villages that typically don't have any evidence of taking part in trade or manufacturing etc and these villages appear to be occupied for a generation two generations Mm. and then they move the likely reason for that is that they were practicing a combination of paddy agriculture using that irrigated landscape and also effectively something called chenna agriculture in Sri Lanka, which is based Sweden, slash and burn. Yeah. But because of that, and because of the fact that these small villages are small, they're short-lived, the architecture is entirely organic, you don't have brick or tile or stone being used in those structures. You aren't it, finding much. You're not finding much. It's difficult to map out those sites without mm. doing quite intensive survey work. And even when you do find them, what you're finding is a palimpsest. So you're finding potentially thousands of small settlements, but they're not all occupied at the same time. Okay. All of which, as I say, is a long way of saying we don't really know how many people were living in that landscape. That is a very good and thorough way of saying that. <laughs> we do <laughs> know that the, the irrigated landscape was so successful that we have historical records at multiple points that they are exporting rice to China. Wow. We have records suggesting that they're producing three to four rice harvests a year when in the wow. 19th century they're producing one. Yeah. So we're fairly certain that they were incredibly successful. We have, at this point, Anuradhapura is a trade hub in the Indian Ocean, and you have trade going across to Western Africa. You have trade in contact with the Mediterranean world, up into China, Vietnam, Cambodia, Iran to the West, etc. So this was a real center of South Asian, Indian Ocean trade, Buddhist learning and teaching. As I say, was incredibly successful up until the 11th century, and then Anuradhapura is abandoned completely, and it's replaced by Polnarua, which is located about 200 kilometres to the southeast. So traditional knowledge is that this was attributed to Indian invasion, the abandonment of the capital? Yep. So the established kind of narrative for Sri Lankan history comes from something called the Mahavamsa, or Great Chronicle. Mm is a Pali text or chronicle which covers 6th century BCE to the arrival of the British. So you have this continuous single history of Sri Lanka. This was embraced by the British, translated in the 19th century, and was then effectively used by first the British and then also by Sri Lankan historians and archaeologists as the framework within which you interpreted all the archaeological data. So we know what happened because it's in the Mahavamsa and it's then a question of saying, well, we've identified this building as being the palace of Vijavahu and we've identified this reservoir as being the you know, the particular tank created by Devanampayatissa or so on and so forth. Okay. And so according to the Mahavamsa, in the late 10th century CE, so around 1500 years after Anuradhapura is kind of founded as a city, they have a crisis of poor kingship. This results 
in a South Indian mercenary army, a Tamil mercenary army, going AWOL effectively because they're not being paid. So they start ravaging the landscape around Anuradhapura, sacking villages and monasteries to try and get their pay. And the king panics and he flees Anuradhapura through a secret tunnel and leaves effectively a void with a power vacuum. And hearing about this from a passing horse trader, apparently, the South Indian Chola emperor at the time, Rajaraja I, hears about this vacuum and invades. And in the chronicles, in the Mahavamsa, the Chola army is described as being like a horde of demons who completely sack Anuradhapura, smashing up monasteries, Mm. killing monks. And the Cholas then set up their own capital in Sri Lanka at Polonaro. They rule there for about 50 years. They're evicted from the island by a Sinhala prince, Rijabahu, and he then decides to keep the capital at Polonaro rather than returning to Anuradhapura. And that has been the historically accepted sort of truth forever, effectively. Okay, so the British come to Sri Lanka, they see this document, they read through the document, and they go, oh, look, you know, here's proof of a smashed-up temple in the archaeology uh, here's proof of an invading army. I'm being a bit liberal here with yeah, the well, terms that Yeah, and, that, and that's and, a really good question. Because that and, is the, and we'll also take that and that and that and put it in our museums. Thank you very much, Sri Lanka. Oh, there's definitely there's a lot of the <laughs> we'll take that and put it in museums, yeah. No, the interesting thing is that there is no smashed up temples, really. But the whole thing of... So this is why you come to doubt that account, is it? Yeah, so that's, that's where my PhD research came in, is that there was repeated conflict between... Sri Lankan kings and South Indian kings, Cholas, Pandians, etc., going back almost a thousand years. Mm. And at no point did this result in the complete abandonment of you know, Anuradhapura or anywhere else. And so part of the question was, well, what is so different about this Chola invasion? And then the other part of it is that, looking at it archaeologically, there is no real evidence for it. Now, in archaeology in general... The absence of evidence doesn't mean something's not there. There is a complete absence of what we might think of as a destruction horizon. You know, you don't have this kind of thick charcoal covering the site in the 11th century. You don't have smashed up monasteries everywhere. There is a single stone Buddhist railing which appears to have been deliberately broken and dates roughly to the right period. And that has been sort of linked to this apparent Chola sacking. But that doesn't make an invasion. It's a single thing. Yeah. I'm not questioning the fact that the Cholas arrived. We have very clear evidence from Polonaro that they were there, they were ruling the island. We have very clear historical evidence from South India that the Cholas say, we conquered Sri Lanka, and mm-hmm. the Sri Lankans are saying, the Cholas invaded. But you can't attribute the abandonment of the city to no. that event. And, and that's the sort of the interesting thing. What we do see archaeologically is in the citadel, during the final century we have really clear evidence of what we term crisis architecture. So that's buildings indicating that something is going badly wrong. And so during that final century in the Royal Citadel, they're digging pits effectively into the Citadel to get structural materials out from earlier buildings and then piling that on top of their ramparts. So they're so desperate to make their ramparts higher, bigger, more imposing that they're tearing apart the citadel itself. So something is very badly wrong with the royal secular elite there. At the same time, the big Buddhist monasteries, they're still building brand new monasteries in the hinterland. There's absolutely no sign whatsoever of that same kind of crisis occurring in the monastic orders. Mm. 
So I would argue that this is to do with the interaction of power between the Buddhist monasteries and the kings. The monarchy in Sri Lanka, or the monarchy in the Anuradhapura period, existed to a degree as defenders of the faith. Although they were a secular elite themselves, mm. a key part of their function, and same, you know, you see exactly the same in Europe with Christianity frequently. What we see archaeologically and historically is donations of land, donations of water rights made by the secular elite to Buddhist monasteries, sometimes to Buddhist monks. And we see these increasing over time. And they're always made in perpetuity. So they're always permanent. So once this land has been donated to a monastery, the king cannot tax it. They can't enter the land to collect tax. And that's permanent. Same is true of water rights. And so over time, over roughly a thousand years, you start to see more and more of the, you know, sort of the Anuradhapura kingdom effectively being ceded to monastic orders. And we see textually this constant struggle in Sri Lanka between this idea that Buddhist monks cannot own property and then this kind of legalistic workaround which sees that while individual monks cannot own property, the Buddhist clergy, the Sangha, as a whole can. It is kind of incorporated sort of status. <laughs> and so you very quickly see Buddhist monasteries owning huge amounts of land and being incredibly involved in the day-to-day running of the kingdom effectively and yeah. taxation collection of oh, so it becomes like like an offshore bank account kind of a bit like that yeah it's just kind of in, and and also individual monks frequently owning stuff which they shouldn't do and then being told off and there's various exciting scriptural records of that and this is reflected back in that archaeological record what mm. i was saying before but we see these long-lived buddhist monasteries which appear to be kind of existing as these administrative hubs in the landscape and in a sense that's fine that's that partially at least for a long time is what helps i think give Anuradhapura, its success and its its longevity, but over time that also means that the secular power of royal power is weakened mm. and weakened and weakened, and the only way they can get legitimacy and power is by being endorsed and supported by the Buddhist orders, and they do that by giving more land and more water rights. And I've argued, at least, that is what produces this crisis. This crisis comes about because the the secular power, the royal power in Anuradhapura attenuates itself to such a degree in trying to get legitimacy and support. And the Buddhist orders, they're not working together this breakdown in relationships and the the hoarding of power and wealth by Buddhist monasteries is partly what leads to this crisis. It sounds like a very gradual yeah. process. Archaeologically, at least, and looking at the some of the inscriptions and so on, all of the really big construction in Anuradhapura, the gigantic stupas. So you have um, each of those three monastic orders has its own huge stupa. And from its construction in, I think, 3rd century CE until sort of New York really becomes this kind of, you know, city of skyscrapers in the 19th century, Jaitavana stupa is the tallest brick built structure in the world. Wow. It's not as big as a pyramid, a stone, but it's up there. It's yeah. absolutely huge. There's three of them. So Jaitavana is slightly taller, but there's also Ruan Velisaya and Abayagiri. And also the largest of the reservoirs, those huge resilience building tanks, reservoirs out in the wider landscape. They're all constructed by the 5th century CE, most hmm. of them earlier, but the last of the great reservoirs is put in in 5th century. And for the next 500 years, 
we don't see any big construction. We don't see anything else on that kind of scale. Ah, so right. you have almost kind of this state emerges in the early historic period, sort of really starts to flourish after the third century BCE. And it's in a very marginal environment because of that, you know, the issues with rainfall and lack of water storage, etc. But it adapts and it develops a very niche, specialist, but successful hydraulic landscape, which allows them to flourish in this environment. Which means that probably from about the sort of 6th, 7th century CE to the, the collapse of the, the abandonment, it's running at kind of absolute peak efficiency slash on the edge. There is no more slack, there's no more reserve. And so when something goes wrong, as we see in the 10th century, there's nowhere to turn. There's a lack of taxes. They can't get enough taxes to pay the Tamil mercenary army, yeah, they yeah. go rogue, etc. Okay. So that's the failure of Anuradhapura. The interesting question, or one of the interesting questions then, was when Vijabar, the Sri Lankan prince, evicts the Cholas from Sri Lanka around 1070. Why doesn't he return? Why doesn't he return, exactly. And mm. this is particularly important to Sri Lanka because Anuradhapura is seen as being the Buddhist golden age of the island. Today, the island is still vastly, predominantly Theravada Buddhist. Anuradhapura is a Theravada Buddhist kingdom. And... Siddhartha Gautama Buddha is supposed to have visited Anuradhapura on more than one occasion. So the idea is that he walked upon this landscape. The very landscape of Anuradhapura is sacred and is holy. So why don't they return? And the rough argument in the Chronicles is that Anuradhapura had been laid waste. We just don't see that in terms of the archaeological record. Mm. What we do see is that when the Cholas conquer and rule Sri Lanka for about 50 years from Polonara, they're not Theravada Buddhist. And we see the Cholas effectively removing these incredibly powerful Buddhist orders from the landscape and replacing that Theravada Buddhist state with a much more cosmopolitan... When Vijabahu then removes the Cholas, the Theravada clergy is so weakened after 50 years of Chola rule that Vijabahu has to request Theravada monks be sent from other Southeast Asian countries. Okay, yeah. But we also see him supporting Mahayana Buddhist monasteries and indeed Hindu temples. And so for a significant period of its history, Polonaro is much more cosmopolitan in its religious outlook. And it's hard to go back from something like that. I'm not sure it's so much hard to go back as I don't think there's any reason the Sri Lankan royalty would want to go back because you'd reached this point where the Buddhist clergy were so powerful mm. that to return to Anuradhapura would be to return to that sacred Buddhist landscape and this particular model of statecraft and economy. And by instead maintaining Polonaro as capital, you have, to a degree, kind of reset that economic structure. Oh, so it was a a brutal but convenient out. That's what I would argue, yes. I I think the big problem in all of this is that currently we don't have good archaeological data for Polonaro. We don't know enough about the development of the city itself. And historically there's very few mentions of Polonaro before it becomes capital so we don't understand the urban history of Polonaro and we also don't know what happens in the hinterland and we were hoping to start field work in July this year unfortunately the, the tragic Easter bombings have affected our timeline so we're now looking at a first field season in probably December of this year the ARC discovery project aims to better understand the emergence and growth of the urban core of Polnara and then more importantly that wider landscape 
So when Polonaro becomes capital, when it becomes this big urban core, what impact does that have on the landscape around it? And what type of so settlement economy do we see? Do we have larger order villages, towns, etc.? Or do we still see all of those kind of economic functions of tax collection, trade, manufacturing occurring in monastic centres? So let's say we have four years of funding. So hopefully I'll be able to come back in four years' time and tell you more about that. As long as we can come back and tell a story that makes sense and which is underpinned by the actual data, of course. Um, yeah, I'll be happy. All right. Well, thanks for your time today. Thank you. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you may find your podcasts. You can follow La Trobe, Asia on Twitter. We are at La Trobe, Asia. You can follow Keir Strickland on Twitter. He is at Keir underscore Strickland. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.